Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. We just got done singing that, and it comes through a lot of old hymns, that issue of law and grace, and that's what we're going to spend some time on this morning. But have any of you ever used a tool for a task for which it wasn't intended? I am famous or infamous or a jerk in our household for doing this. That, of course, is a steak knife. And that, of course, is not on. Can you advance that for me? And that, of course, is a, about to become a screwdriver. Steak knife, screwdriver. And Barb has told me, she's put them both out on the counter and said, steak knife, screwdriver. Screwdrivers are good for opening paint cans, prying things loose, turning in screws. Knives are not. But I'm a slow learner. <laughs> Which brought up an interesting Christmas a few years ago when I bought Barb a new set of steak knives and she bought me a Leatherman. <laughs> but as you'll see in a minute, that really didn't solve the problem Honestly, that's my Leatherman in my kitchen right now. We've been married 32 years, dear, and it's going okay. But this is probably one of the things that if you're in premarital counseling, figure out. Screwdriver, steak knife, easy. Hopefully that's helpful to you in terms of this. So, but that issue of how do we use tools particularly in this case, theological tools for their intended meaning and their intended purpose. And if we don't do them, we can end up really stuck. That's a passion that I have because of an extended conversation I've had with a Dort student, now a Dort graduate, about God's law and about the nature of God and about how the law impacts us and this conversation is one with a student who knows it, who can recite it, but has been struggling to figure out how to put that in place and understand it. And so this morning, we're not going to go into a detailed exposition of the Ten Commandments, but I'm going to use that as kind of that picture of God's law that we just spoke about, right? Not the labors of my hands can fulfill your law's demands. This isn't all about the Ten Commandments, but it is this concept of God as a God of justice. A God that has given us both the moral law within our hearts, as we talk about, as well as gave to the Israelites and gives through the Word the law, this expectation about this. But the key that I want to try to have you see is how to apply the law in the right way, to use that tool in the Christian life in the correct way and not end up, quite frankly, where this student was. When, we, when John and sang that second song, I rest my weary soul in thee, these conversations started with this student because they were weary. They couldn't figure it out. They were at the end of themselves in terms of trying to understand how a God that they wanted to be a loving, kind father seemed other than that. And through that extended conversation over many months, 
it brought this idea up to me, and I just wanted to point this out. I'm enough of a history buff, as well as Barb and I are founding members of the Museum of the Bible, that whenever I get a chance to put the Bible in terms of American culture, I'm going to do it. You know what building that is? Who knows? Supreme Court, I heard it up here. Way up in the peak is Moses, biblical Moses, sitting up in the top peak with the two tablets of the law sitting there. If you ever get a chance to go to the Museum of the Bible, there's this great ride there. It's a virtual reality ride where it whisks you around Washington, D.C., and you see all the biblical references throughout Washington, D.C. I'd highly recommend it if you ever get to Washington, D.C. Again, enough of a history buff, a fan of American culture and, and the Bible's place in it that I just couldn't resist as long as we were on the Ten Commandments. But this conversation with this student brought me to this thinking. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And there's a great extended dialogue between Lewis and Tozer in terms of their writings, not at the same time. They're not contemporaries. But this was said during Lewis's time too, and he said it's a bunch of bunk. But for its intended use today, with this student, I said, tell me about who God is to you. And we talked about the metaphor that this student thought of about God, and it resonated to me back in my days at that. And so I thought it was an appropriate topic for the starting chapel of the year, because if I remember myself struggling with that in the years that I was a student, and this student had gotten to the end of themselves and was weary, was ready to give up. As we talked about that, the metaphor that came up as this student thought about God were these two metaphors. It's been said that it's a big difference whether you think you have a stingy God or a generous God. And this student had gotten to the place of a stingy God, of a God that was just waiting for them to mess up. Almost, the student said, I feel sometimes like I'm in a sin trap, much like a speeding trap. And God is just ready to pounce. Or God is a referee. And every time I turn around, there's a yellow card or a red card. And the more we talked about that metaphor, it was clear to me that that student, in terms of understanding God's law and what is in Scripture about how we are to live, was using the tool of the law in an inappropriate way, much as if I was using our home steak knives to pry open paint cans. And the more I've thought about that and working through that in my own life, as well as in the life of this student, I thought, we need to talk about that. Because the law has application, but if we use it in the wrong way, we're going to end up down a lot of dead ends with a lot of weariness, as that song captured so well. And it's not intended to be that way. It never was. But the student said, well, when I read Scripture, right, there was this God, He created Adam and Eve, and He said, don't do this in terms of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they did it. And they got kicked out. So it's understandable that we would start with that metaphor. But again, if we understand it as, well, you can't do that, as opposed to, look at all the things you can do, right? And then the story of the Israelites, and then going into the Pharisees. There's a long tradition of law being used in a justification manner that if we're students of the Bible, it's understandable that we could walk away from that feeling like God is either a police officer with a radar gun just waiting for us to mess up, or a referee with a yellow card, or to boot us out for targeting. 
It's very understandable. So I don't want you to feel bad if that's the metaphor of God, but I want to try to renew that metaphor of God for you to, to something that we got to with that student through a long set of conversations. G.K. Chesterton said this, when you break the big laws, you do not get liberty. You do not even get anarchy. You get small laws. And if we look back in Scripture and we say, at first there was just one law. Adam and Eve, you've got it all. We've got one law. Can't follow that. We start with ten. Can't follow that. We expand, we expand, we expand. And again, I think there's some truth in what Chesterton says about the big laws. And again, talking with this student, and also in my life, there are times where I feel like this. Right? I've got a gate around me that's so tight that I just want to break through. And if we believe that God's laws are that, this constraining, stopping us from having fun, stopping us from the joy that seems like everybody else is having, we're going to want to stick our head through. And guess what? We're going to get stuck as well. But I think that's the wrong metaphor to look at God's laws, but it is so natural because of that arc of Scripture through the Israelites to get there. And we spend so much time thinking about that metaphor for the law that we miss out on what I really think is God's intended metaphor for the law. And that is, there are a number of cliffs in the world. There are a number of ways we can stub our toes, run off the path, fall down. And God says, I want to teach you. I'm your loving Father. I'm going to put a guardrail up. And if we change the metaphor from a fence that's so constraining around us to guardrails from people who have been down that road before or who have created the precipices that we go off, then I think we start to change our minds about who God is. And I think we really start to live into that in a powerful way. Now, again, if we start with Scripture and we see that arc, we can understand how we can get to that place. And I really think it's a perception problem and a usage problem. And one of my favorite courses was social psychology. And I happen to be in marketing. And so the application of social psychology into marketing is one of my favorite things about perception. And I do think we change our behavior on the basis of the perceptions that we have. It was clear talking to the student that for a while they were trying to kick the fence down. For a while they just sat and were weary because of their perceptions about how God's law was supposed to apply to their lives. So I want to just do a small thought experiment to you about perceptions, because on the one hand, God's law is God's law, and I'm not saying this morning, Sioux County Conservatives, this is for you, I'm not saying <laughs> that God's laws are random how we see them. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, when we stand inside ourselves, and look at God's laws and make assumptions about God, that he's a policeman or a referee, rather than a dear, dear father who has given us guardrails, our behavior will change. Whether that's staying away, hiding in our closets, trying to break down the barriers that are around us, or just simply falling into a heap, weary of trying to justify ourselves before God. That's why perception and getting it right about 
what God's law is and when to use it is so important. So this little social psychology is a book, Priceless, that I've read for marketing. It's about pricing and perceptual pricing and using social psychology for pricing. And this example is in the book. So you tell me, are those two squares of a different shade or the same shade? Yell it out. Same shade, okay. That's your perception. How about now? Square A and square B, same shade, different shade? Different, except those of you who are already ahead of the game. I, I, I can't prove it to you, but I'm your university president. I hope you can trust me. There is no manipulation here. I'm simply going to take things away from square A and square B by putting white blocks over the exact same picture, and if you doubt it, you can come up to the sound booth with me afterwards. I'm just going to start taking things away from square A and square B, things that surround it, things that change our perceptions. Now, we'll go again. <laughs> A and B, the same. A and B, different. Take away all the noise. Take away all the externalities. Take away all the miscellaneous and non-critical thoughts to it. And we end up seeing that A and B are the same. There's a theological point in here somewhere, and I'll find it. I promise. <laughs> if we get it wrong about how we stand before the law and how the work of Christ changes everything about the law from the Old Testament to the New, we will interact with the law in ways that are not helpful to us and I think keep us from the rich life that God intends for us to have. And it can apply in psychology and pricing. It can apply in theology as well. And so this morning, I just want to spend a few minutes thinking about our perceptions about God and whether he's a policeman, a referee, or a good, good father. And what it is about, yes, the Ten Commandments are kind of that stand-in for God's justice and his law characteristics as our father. As it's no surprise to you, I go to two places, John Calvin and the Heidelberg Catechism, to help us understand a little bit more about the law. Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, has a long section on what he calls the threefold use of the law. What we've been talking about in terms of the Supreme Court building is really purpose two, what he calls is a civic use. There's a Latin term for it, I'm not going to try it but the law is a cultural order keeper. And I think that's where we can understand the power of the state in terms of a referee or a policeman. Because there is hints of the Ten Commandments and the moral law that are in English common law, that are in our system of government, that are in every culture because of common grace and the image bearing that's in us. So we can understand, but if that's the second use, which really for Christians, we are called to participate in civic government. We are called to obey civic government. But in terms of justification, sanctification, and the, the Christian life, purpose two is really outside of that. But I think when we 
have the A and the B blocks with a lot of other stuff around, we really get confused and we start to confuse speeding down the highway or murdering somebody or whatever it may be in the civic realm and we put that in light of our justification that we will stand someday before the throne. And again, it either makes us want to kick it down or just get weary. And so what Calvin said is, purpose one is as a mirror. A mirror, first of all, to see ourselves as it relates to God. The law helps us understand the character of God. His omnipotence, His holiness, His perfection, His love. And then when we get in that mirror and we see ourselves, we understand just how short, if it's of our own volition. Yes, we are created in the image of God, but we are creatures and not Creator. And the first use of the law is to understand our brokenness. That we can and do and always will continue to break things down. The third use of the law is really where I'm aiming at today and that, where that conversation with that student went. The law is a guide, but also a prod for joyful and joy-filled living. Not constrained living, but really living that says, run out on the precipice, watch the guardrail, but go do it. And that prod piece, right, that third, and what, look at what Calvin says, the principal use of the law. It applies as a mirror to understand God and how we stand with Him. It applies in the civic realm, but Calvin says this, it's the third and principal use, which pertains more closely to the proper purpose of the law. Finds its place among believers in whose hearts the Spirit of God already lives and reigns, and it's namely for teaching and exhortation. Exhortation is to say, go do something for me, and here's how you should do it. Right? So it shows us the way that we should live for our benefit and Christ's glory, and it also pushes us, it prods at us to work at it. Again, not to justify ourselves by any means. Not to justify ourselves, but in gratitude for what Christ has done for us. I grew up on the Heidelberg Catechism. Some of you perhaps did as well. Maybe this is new. But the Heidelberg Catechism has three sections. The first two questions and answers, one and two, are just the introduction. After that, it goes into a section on sin, a section on salvation, and a section on service. And you see the question and answers which go back and forth. The Presbyterians are more comfortable calling it guilt, grace, and gratitude. The Reformed are more sin, salvation, and service. Either way, the only place the law shows up in the entire catechism are in sections 1 and sections 3. Much as Calvin said, the mirror to show us our guilt and our misery and the sin that's inside of us but in the salvation grace piece, the law doesn't show up at all. There's no mention. It's all about God. The triune God of Scripture. The Holy Spirit. The work of Christ. Sanctification. It comes later in section 3. Justification is in section 2. And I think that's what the Reformed tradition can bring to this conversation about law. is It still applies. We are not free to do anything those guardrails are there, but we are free in Christ from the penalty of the law. And so to understand upholding the law has absolutely nothing to do with our justification, yet the law has tremendous implications for our sanctification. And when we go to the five solas of the Reformation, sola gratia, by grace alone, soli fide, by faith alone, and solo Christus, by Christ alone, we can then start to understand 
that the law isn't there to catch us up and that God isn't a referee or a policeman waiting for us to make a mistake. But he's a loving father that has given us in that gratitude piece, in that service piece, the guidelines in terms of thriving and living for him. So let me go to Scripture and show you how that unfolds in the New Testament when Jesus starts his ministry. He makes it absolutely clear to people, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, that's forever, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. He makes it clear it still applies, but I'm here to fulfill it. And then he starts to unpack that in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you know, technically that little constraint about thou shalt not murder, that still applies. But I want to tell you that it's deeper than just murder. It's about anger. It's about frustration. It's about enmity between people, either in your dorm room or in your town or in your politics or across the globe. Thou shalt not murder was the technical thing that God gave you, but I'm going to blow it all up and fulfill it through the love command. He says the same thing about adultery. Adultery is not just the technical act one time. It's about where your spirit and your heart is. Are your your sexual urges tuned to sing God's praise? Or are they disordered? Jesus makes that very clear when He starts His ministry. And later in His ministry, right, the Pharisees wanted to catch Him up. So they said, we've got you now. So tell us, what's the first and greatest? We've got more than 600 total laws. What's the first and greatest? And He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang. They're not gone. They hang on those two things. And so as we start to apply the law of love into the context of our created order with the moral law, we start to get a picture of what sanctification will look like. Again, not justification, but sanctification. And you might say to me, Eric, that's easy. Or you might say to Jesus, that's easy for you to say. You're God. You don't know what I'm going through. Guess what? The only reason that he's a good Savior is because he was a true human. And he does understand it. And Hebrews makes that clear. For Jesus is not some high priest who has no sympathy for our weaknesses and flaws. He knows what it feels like to be constrained. He understands the justice of God. He understands the temptations of a lustful eye or an angry heart. That's why He's a sufficient Savior for us. So we don't get off by just saying, well, that's easy for you, Jesus. It's real for Him. So it makes the cross so very, very powerful. And then lastly, we come to where we started. We begin to understand the character of God as this good, good Father. For how many of you, if your son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Jesus starts to reshape the character of God from what the Israelites and the Pharisees understood about the character of God. And he says, I'm God. I was there at the beginning. I will see it completed. God is a good, good Father. And so through that conversation that I had with that student, we began to move from God as a policeman with a radar gun or a referee with yellow and red cards at the ready, to this metaphor. That parable is called the parable of the prodigal son. 
That was never given that way. Jesus didn't call it that. I think there's lessons in there for us to understand our good, good Father. And I know some of you have never had that experience of having a good, good Father who's willing to show you the ropes in ways that are loving and kind. And I've made my mistakes as a father as well. But that's the law of the Lord is good and right. We read that in Psalm 19. Put these words in your heart, students. If you're struggling where that student was of being weary and feeling constrained and feeling like God is there to just catch you, put these words in your heart this semester. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord, all those rules, all those guidelines are right and they'll bring rejoicing to your heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Who can discern their errors? Excuse me. Moreover, in them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, and let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And that's only through Christ, not in your work. But after God saves us, He saves us and shows us the way. So let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart this semester be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. We're going to sing one last song. Would you rise? And I'm going to reread Psalm 19 over you as a blessing from the message. So please stand, Dort University. Can you go back to that? Nope, no, we're not starting over. I'll give you a blessing. I would encourage you to grab the message and read Psalm 19. I just read it out of you, the NIV. It just explodes in meaning about God as a good, good Father who, yes, has set guidelines around us, but they're not guidelines to catch us. They're guidelines to bless us and to sanctify us evermore by His Spirit to the people that He originally intended us to grow into. So read Psalm 19 in the message for your blessing. We're going to sing a last song.